Thank you, Tom. Let me invite you to open your copy of the Bible to uh, Mark chapter 2. Great to see each one of you here with us today. Let me uh, read our passage today. We'll be beginning with Mark 2.23 and uh, reading all the way through chapter 3, verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is God's authoritative and inerrant word. May he bless what we've read, and let's uh, again as always, ask for his help as we look into this passage today. We do ask that you would quicken us with your Holy Spirit, um, that I would not be the one talking up here, but Heavenly Father, that we would hear uh, the very words of Christ. Please set me aside so that we can hear your truth and help me to be a, a clear mouthpiece for you to speak through. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be receptive. Uh, I pray that they would be soft and moldable as we sit under your word today. And Lord, I pray that you would grant us this posture of submission to your truth. Help us and strengthen us. Jesus, I pray this in your precious name. Amen. James Edwards observes that uh, most world religions have sacred places of worship, and you might recognize, recognize this as Mecca, which Islam honors. Hindus treat the Ganges rivers as sacred. Shintoism, uh, less familiar to you probably, reveres the whole island of Japan. And the Jewish faith, uh, you're probably aware of this, they consider Jerusalem sacred, but in particular, the temple located in Jerusalem, which is near that shiny gold dome. Uh, 
Um, there is something even more sacred to Jewish people than the temple, however. The thing they honor even more than the temple is the Sabbath. Uh, there were two customs in the Jewish faith that set them apart from nations around them. One was the rite of circumcision uh, performed on baby boys who were eight days old. And the other was observing the Sabbath, resting from all work on the seventh day of the week or Saturday. It began on uh, sunset Friday night, lasted till sunset on Saturday night. And keeping the Sabbath was a sign that God had marked out them in particular to be his people. And keeping that was a, a huge part of their identity, still is. And this kept them from being absorbed by the pagan culture around them. Well, the conflict we've seen brewing here in chapter 2 started all the way back at the beginning of the chapter, uh, reaches the boiling point today. Uh, and the issue that brings their conflict to this dramatic climax is observing the Sabbath. Uh, the actions of Jesus and his disciples on the Sabbath stir up a huge controversy with the Pharisees. Why is it so volatile? What's involved in this country? Why controversy? Why is there so much conflict on the issue of observing the Sabbath? Well, as we work through our passage this morning, we'll see that there are two main issues involved. One issue uh, is Jesus' authority over the Sabbath. And this we'll see in verses 23 through 28. And the second issue is Jesus' purpose for the Sabbath in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3. Let's look at this first issue uh, to begin with. Uh, his authority over the Sabbath. G the Pharisees complain that the disciples have broken uh, the Sabbath. Uh, this is the first thing we see under his authority here. I'm going to mention three things here. At first, we see the Pharisees protesting what the disciples are doing. Uh, look with me at, at verse 23 in your Bible. It says, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, or see here, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? The disciples were hungry that Sabbath morning and had nothing to eat. Perhaps they're making their way to the synagogue. And so they're plucking heads of standing grain, rubbing them between their hands so they'd have uh, something to eat on the way. It was perfectly acceptable to do this in the law of Moses. Uh, in fact, Deuteronomy 23 says it like this, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Uh, a few heads of grain would not make a difference to his crop, but using a sickle to harvest stalks would. You can snack on a few heads of grain, but not harvest your neighbor's grain for yourself. And so the disciples are 
doing what's perfectly legitimate in the law of Moses. They're just grabbing a few heads of grain and uh, rubbing them together so they can have a, a, a light meal, a, a snack, a trail mix, if you will. But they were. Weren't breaking the law of God, but they were breaking the tradition of the Pharisees. Um, the main command associated with the Sabbath in God's word had to do with resting from work and to help people from accidentally working on the Sabbath. I don't know about you, I've never accidentally worked in my entire life. <laughs> but they were so uh, jealous to preserve um, the holiness of God that they came up with 39 principles that defined what work was, all to help people avoid accidentally working on the Sabbath. In other words, they added to the written word of God. Uh, they elevated these to the same level as the written word of God. And all of these 39 forms of work were forbidden on the Sabbath. One of those banned people from reaping, which in their minds is exactly what the disciples were doing. This is the reason for their protest. See here, why are they doing what's not lawful? In reality, it's not about what God's word said, but about what they had added to the word of God. The disciples had broken their tradition. This leads us to another thing under this uh, authority of Jesus here. The second thing we find is the precedent. Uh, Jesus refers to a previous event in scripture to defend his disciples as, as perhaps any attorney might do to argue his case. He would refer to a, a previous law. Notice this, it comes in verse 25. And it says, and he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and the men who were with him? Oh, have you never read what David did? Essentially, it's asking the Pharisees, have you not read your Bibles? A uh, very uh, outrageous thing for Christ to say. They prided themselves on their knowledge of Scripture congratulated themselves on being experts in the law. This would have come across as highly offensive. But Jesus goes on in verse 26, how he, David that is, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anybody, anybody but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with them. This is an event from 1 Samuel chapter 21 when David was on the run from King Saul and David arrived at the tabernacle needing food for himself and his men. The priest had nothing there except the bread of the presence. Uh, that consisted of uh, the bread stacked on this table, often called the table of showbread, uh, table for the bread of presence. It was made of gold and they would put 12 loaves on the bread on the table of presence uh, every Sabbath. It would be renewed every Sabbath. Uh, 
And this was a clear command of Scripture. It's, it's dedicated to the priests and the priests alone. For example, Leviticus says, And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a, per, a perpetual due. But the priest gave David some of this holy bread and apparently violating this law. Now, why is Jesus referring to this event? Uh, this has nothing really to do with the Sabbath. Why does he point to this event from, from David's life in 1 Samuel? Well, the similarity between this event and his disciples' situation is that there's great need. His disciples were in need just as David and his men were in need. And David, as the anointed one of Israel, had authority to set aside this command because of his men's uh, extreme need. Uh, David, after all, was the great hero of ancient Israel, the, the ideal king, the forerunner of the Messiah. His, his, his memory was practically enshrined in Israel's history. And if David, by his authority, could temporarily set aside this restriction from the law of God, then Christ is saying, surely I, with far greater authority can set aside your man-made tradition. If he could do that with uh, one part of God's law, surely I can do this with something that's not even recorded in Scripture. This is the precedent. And Christ goes on to drive this point home in the next thing that we see and that is the principle. And by that I mean he declares himself to be the principal authority in this issue. He is the foremost one who can speak with utter authority. He, after all, is the true champion of Israel, not David. Uh, he is the principal, and we're about to see him take the Pharisees to school. He starts by telling them why he created the Sabbath. That's right, why he created the Sabbath. Uh, we see this in verse 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Uh, recall that Christ is the agent of creation, the one who brought all things into existence. Colossians says all things were created through him and for him. And that would naturally include the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. Uh, the Sabbath was made for man. It was created as a benefit for man for him to enjoy, for him to delight in, for him to oh, rest from his work. As one person said, people are not made for Sabbath rules, but the Sabbath was instituted in order to bless humanity and enhance its well-being. But then he goes on to say in verse 28, look at it with me. 
so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is the second time he's referred to himself as the Son of Man. Uh, it, it is not a reference to his humanity, uh, that he is the perfect man. He's, he's not, although he was human, had a human nature and a divine nature, that's not what he's drawing attention to. He's not identifying himself as the ideal human through this title. What he's identifying himself as is the person mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. And you're probably not familiar with that, so allow me to read this vision from Daniel, these two verses. And Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that would be God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Son of Man doesn't emphasize his humanity. It, it describes Jesus as the one chosen by God the Father and given authority to rule heaven and earth for all eternity. Talk about, talk about name dropping. I am the son of man. I'm the principal one, Jesus says. My authority as the son of man far exceeds the authority of David, Israel's revered king. I am the true champion and Messiah of Israel, the Lord and Master of the Sabbath. Now just let's just stop and, and imagine how this came across to the Pharisees. He's already accused them of not reading their Bibles. Like, don't you guys know anything? And he says, I, the Son of Man, am Lord and Master of the Sabbath. Well, in their minds, they were lords and masters of the Sabbath. They're the one who said what was kosher to do on the Sabbath. They're the ones that came up with 39 additional laws to prevent people from accidentally working. They're the authority. They could tell people what to do and not to do. And Jesus says, I, the Son of Man, am Lord even of the Sabbath. No wonder there's conflict. No wonder there's a huge controversy over the Sabbath and observing the Sabbath. Well, this is the third thing. Christ is the principal authority. He still is, isn't he? Amen. He still is uh, the one with authority to tell us what to do on the Sabbath. It's Christ, isn't it? What does Christ tell us to do on the Sabbath? What does his authoritative word tell you and me who live on the other side of the cross? 
as New Testament saints, are you and I called to observe the Sabbath? I believe Christ uh, and his authoritative word tell us two things. New Testament saints about the Sabbath. I don't have this on a slide, I'm sorry. His word, his authoritative word tell us, tells us two things about the Sabbath. First, his word tells us that there is still a Sabbath principle. Principle spelled differently uh, than the last one I showed you. There is still a principle or still a guideline, a law of setting aside one day out of seven. You and I are still called to make one day of the week different from the other six. And you, I hear you saying this, but Rob, that's part of the law of Moses and Christ fulfilled the law. I agree wholeheartedly. The law was a shadow. Christ is the substance. But the Sabbath principle, the idea of setting aside one day out of seven, it was in place long before the law of Moses came along. Long before Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. Now, if you don't believe me, you can turn to Genesis 2 in your Bible if you want to. I'm going to read a couple verses from Genesis 2 to, to show you that, that it was really on the seventh day of creation that the Sabbath principle uh, uh, came about. I mean, the world was not very old. The crust had barely hardened. It had just come out of the oven, so to speak. Um, they were waiting for it to cool off. I'm being facetious, of course. I'm not, I'm not trying to be irreverent. But this is what Genesis 2 says. On the seventh day of creation, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And again, from the New Testament, we would see this as Christ, the creator. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God took one day out of the seven and made it holy. Made it different. Set it apart, which is what holy means. Make it unique. Make it distinctive. Much later... Much, much later, you could say, the Lord gave the law to Moses and Israel, uh, codifying or putting this principle into law in the Ten Commandments, part of the moral law of God. But the idea of a Sabbath, the idea of setting aside one day out of seven came long before the law of Moses. I believe that this principle of one in seven is still in effect because it's not based in the law of Moses, it's based in creation. There's another principle there in chapter 2, as you get to the end. Uh, another principle, the principle of marriage. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's also a principle based in God's creation of the world. And most of us, Hopefully, most of us wouldn't dream of setting aside the principle of marriage. 
I hope all of us would staunchly defend marriage as, God's, as God defines it here in Genesis 2, 24. And if that's the case, why would we believe that we can set aside the principle of one day in seven that was also established at creation? Are you following me? Listen to Dr. R.C. Sproul. The sanctity or the holiness, the distinctness, the sacredness, you could say, the sanctity of the Sabbath was instituted at creation. After his creative work of six days, God rested on the seventh day and hallowed it, made it holy. By hallowing it, God set the seventh day apart. He consecrated it as holy. The principle then of Sabbath, one in seven, remains in, intact. So one reason uh, we should set aside one day in seven is because it started at creation. There's another reason about uh, why we should set aside one day in seven. And this is a very practical reason. And people have found over the years, what do you know? This thing of one in seven really works out well. People work and are more productive if they rest one day of the week. Well, imagine that. It turns out to be a very great benefit for both an employer and an employee. Uh, they've observed that people work more efficiently and more effectively if they rest one in seven. Very practical. Um, contesting this idea, uh, during the French Revolution, the Christian Sabbath was abolished in France. And this account says one day in ten as a day of rest was substituted for one day in seven. We cannot destroy Christianity until we first des destroy the Christian Sabbath, said uh, Voltaire, uh, atheist philosopher. It says the experiment worked disastrously for man and beast, horses going for ten days without rest broke down in the streets under the strain. And of course, the Sabbath was not only for men, but also for his livestock. So first of all, the, the word of God, the authority of Christ, tells us there's still a Sabbath principle of setting aside one day in seven to rest from work on that day. But there's another thing his word tells us about the Sabbath uh, that we find in the word. Second, Christ's word replaces the Jewish Sabbath with the Lord's Day. Christ's authoritative word replaces the Jewish Sabbath with the Lord's Day. Of course, there's no direct command stating this. There's no entry in the book of Acts that tells us exactly uh, this. But by reading the history of the early church, we can infer, we can conclude that this is what happened. Just as we see in Acts, the early church transition from apostles to elders, we also see a transition from the Jewish Sabbath to the Lord's Day. And what we observe in the early church is that they began to meet on the first day of the week instead of the seventh. And this was to mark the day that Christ rose from the dead. They began this transition on the day Jesus rose from the dead. 
John 20, verse 19 says this, On the evening, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And from here on, we find other references to the church meeting on the first day of the week. Acts 20 mentions it. On the, uh, excuse me, Acts 20, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. I don't want any comments about the length of my sermon today. But note that they're gathering on the first day of the week. And then we read in 1 Corinthians 16 that this seems to have become a regular meeting. Uh, it says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. This is about the offering for the famine in Jerusalem. And by the time we get to the book of Revelation, I, I believe it's the last book written in the New Testament, the first day of the week has been come to uh, called the Lord's Day. In Revelation chapter 1, the Apostle John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So then by reading the history of the early church, just the New Testament, we can infer or conclude uh, safely, I believe, from from the word that the Jewish Sabbath on Saturday has been replaced by the Lord's Day on Sunday, the first day of the week, to mark the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Well, so then, what does Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, the one with sole authority, the one with principal authority over the Sabbath, instruct you and me to do in his authoritative word? He tells us to observe the Sabbath principle. He tells you to set one day aside in seven, making it distinct from the other six and to rest from your work on that day. Now, you don't have to believe me. You don't even have to believe God's word. You just keep going. Go ahead. Work seven days a week. And I'll come see you in the hospital. He tells us to observe the Sabbath principle. And second, he tells us that the Jewish Sabbath has been replaced by the Lord's Day uh, to commemorate his resurrection. And we could add from other passages to gather with fellow saints for worship and instruction as Psalm 92 described to us in our scripture reading. Well, so this is the first issue uh, in this conflict, uh, this, uh, wow, inflammatory controversy that Jesus and his disciples set off. And we've seen three things in our, our passage, the protest from the Pharisees, and, and Jesus quotes a precedent from the life of David, and then finally declares himself as the principal authority on the Sabbath, as the Son of Man. Well, that's the first issue. The second issue comes as we get into chapter 3. The second issue we find is his purpose for the Sabbath. He exercises his authority over the Sabbath by doing what he intended the Sabbath to be for, to do good, to heal. Um, and he heals a man with a deformed hand. 
going to mention three things in this issue as well. First, we encounter the deformed hand. Uh, this gentleman with a deformed hand in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, And he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. First of all, for all we know, this event in chapter 3 could follow on the, on the heels of the end of chapter 2. It's unfortunately separated by the chapter break, but this might follow immediately. It might be the same Pharisees he was talking to at the end of chapter 2. And Jesus and his men have made their way now to the synagogue in Capernaum, most likely, and there they encounter the same Pharisees who are there this time, uh, having put Jesus under surveillance so they might accuse him, catch him, violating the Sabbath. Christ encounters a man with a withered hand. Some believe this was the result of polio or the result of a stroke. Whatever the cause, it left his hand stiff and deformed. Uh, in addition to you know, the social embarrassment that this might have caused the man, there was also a spiritual stigma attached to this kind of handicap. 1 Kings 13 describes how King Jeroboam, angry at one of the prophets of the Lord, stretched out his hand to grab him. And that in doing so, uh, the word says his hand became withered. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back. And so people assume that if you had a withered hand like this man in our passage, it must have been caused by reaching out for something sinful like Jeroboam. And people gave you sideways glances because there was obviously some unconfessed sin in your life and God has afflicted you with this deformity as a result. So there's quite a bit of stigma attached to this physical condition. And we see, encounter, first, the deformed hand. The second thing we see here in this purpose is, again, we see the authoritative Lord. Uh, look at verse 3. It says, And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm? to save life or to kill. In other words, is it lawful on the Sabbath for me to do good to this man, to save his life, or to do harm or to kill, which is what you're planning to do to me? There's a lot of irony here. Which is more acceptable to do on the Sabbath? And Scripture, of course, would tell us that uh, doing good on the Sabbath, saving life, uh, is not only good, it was right and must be done. But this man, they would have claimed, could not be healed on the Sabbath. Applying first aid to a person was okay and was not considered work. 
But doing anything to cure someone of their condition uh, would have to wait until the next day. I know it's crazy. Uh, so this wasn't a life-threatening condition. Jesus would have to come back tomorrow if he wants to cure this man. It's a ridiculous thing. Uh, he would have to wait until sundown to heal him. But Christ says and implies when good can be done, it should be done. It was right. The Sabbath was a time for doing good, especially to relieve someone's suffering. And this would clearly have overridden the Pharisees' ban on work. Uh, and this is, I, I pray, clear to you from the passage. Listen to J.C. Ryle make this comment. There is nothing in all this to warrant the rash assertion of some that our Lord has done away with the fourth commandment. On the contrary, he manifestly speaks of the Sabbath day as a privilege and a gift and only regulates the extent to which its observance should be enforced. He shows that works of necessity and mercy may be done on the Sabbath day. But he says not a word to justify the notion that Christians need not remember the day to keep it holy. Jesus, the authoritative Lord, states the purpose again for the Sabbath. It is for man, not man for the Sabbath. It is to do good. It is to save life. Then lastly, I want you to see the calloused Pharisees. Thirdly, we see the calloused Pharisees at the very end of verse 4, picking up the last phrase. But they were silent. They wouldn't answer his question. And he looked around at them with anger. This word refers to fury. This refers to intense anger. Christ is furious with these Pharisees. But note the next word. Grieved. Christ is pained by them as well. He feels profound sorrow for these men. And look at why. Grieved at their hardness of heart. There have been, been many attempts to explain this phrase, hardness of heart. It essentially refers to spiritual blindness. Or as one man put it, obdurate stupidity. They were calloused to divine truth. And Jesus is both furious and pained at the same time. Notice just how hardened they were. As verse 5 goes on, there in the middle of verse 5, um, well, let me start from the beginning. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand and was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. A, a deformed hand is fully restored 
right before their eyes. I mean, unquestionably, a miracle has taken place in their sight. Who knows what it would have looked like, but this this withered hand would have, uh, the normal color would have returned. It, It would have resumed its normal length and regained, he would have regained use of that hand right in front of their eyes. How do they respond? He's got to go. He's got to go. We must destroy this man. He is ruining everything. They're so uh, set on destroying Jesus that they they join forces with uh, uh, those who support Herod Antipas, the governor of Galilee. And that is odd. It's like a Republican and a Democrat working together. Jesus is a threat politically and spiritually, and he has to go. He has to go. But Christ's purpose uh, shines out. The Sabbath is for doing good, not, not keeping prescribed man-made regulations about the Sabbath. It's, it's for restoring life. And so to demonstrate this purpose, he heals a man with a deformed hand right in front of their eyes. So this is the conflict that has been brewing and here it reaches its boiling point. It is so hot that the Pharisees want to kill him. And the issue that finally brings this growing conflict between them to a climax is observing the Sabbath. After all, the Pharisees, quote-unquote, wrote the book on observing the Sabbath. There are two issues involved here. Two issues that led to this controversy. And one was Jesus' authority over the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the Son of Man. And I say authoritatively what takes place on the Sabbath, not you. And then Jesus' purpose for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made, I created the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath, to do good and to save life. So, there, there is an application, I think, that is inescapable in this. And um, a couple things go through my mind. One is um, you might be here today and simply saying, what? What? What is this about? And it might be completely foreign to you. And the chance could be that you don't have a relationship with Christ. You've never put your faith in his atoning death on the cross. And friend, if if you're confused by all this, I would just simply urge you to consider whether 
you've ever come to know Christ as your Savior and Lord. And perhaps that's where to begin today. I know a lot of you have made that decision, and I encourage you to consider what the Word teaches us about the Sabbath. Forgive me if I'm beating a dead horse. One, you are called to observe one in seven as a distinct day of the week. Uh, Genesis 2, uh, read it for yourself. I, I think it's fairly clear. It, it, it became part of the law of Moses, but that's not where it started. It started in creation. And second, is that the Sabbath has now morphed in the New Testament era into the Lord's Day. So how do you use the Lord's Day? How do you employ the Lord's Day in your family? And so, Dad, let me speak to you, since you're the one hopefully in, in authority in your house, the spiritual leader in your home. Set the Lord's Day apart. Make it distinct. Make it different. Uh, use Joshua's words. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And institute this as a regular thing in your house. Hey, it's Sunday. Where do you think we're going to be? It's the Lord's day. We'll be with his people. We'll be there to sing his praise and fellowship with the saints and hear his word taught so that we can grow as followers of Jesus Christ. Dad, have you, have you done that? It, it, uh, it has to come from you. You can't, your wife can't be elbowing you in the side, honey, you've got to do this. I mean, that's lame. If your wife has to prod you, then men, you need to step up into your role. Hey, it's tomorrow's the Lord's Day. And guess where we're going to be, friends? We'll be at church. I've gone so far that I even go to church on my vacation. Wow. Pastor Rob is a freak. <laughs> I uh, go to the Nine Marks website and I search for a church near me. And Man, we've... There's this one in Nashville we've gone to a couple times as we've passed through there. And boy, we, it's delightful. Good sermons from the Word, expository preaching. Uh, it's just great, uh, you know, and we all go. Dad, set aside the Lord's Day and make it a thing in your house. And it has to be something... Pretty dramatic for us to skip the Lord's Day. I, I know there are those occasions that come along. Our first responders, for example, have to work every third Lord's Day. And, you know, again, I'm not trying to institute a law here that says what you have to do on the Lord's Day. But it seems clear from Scripture that gathering with his saints to worship him is a pretty clear thing that you and I are called to do. And so, Dad, just, I encourage you to make that happen. To set it aside and make it a different day than all the others. Uh, 
and you know I, I I know you have to shoot off a couple work emails but just a couple right and oh man who wants to work on Sunday well here I am working on Sunday <laughs> normally though you don't want to work on Sunday you don't want to go into the office and have to do stuff there might be an emergency where that's required of necessity but that's not normal is it so guys I urge you to for your own health to begin with and for the spiritual health of your family in particular your children your children need to hear the gospel they need to grow in grace they need to be instructed on a regular basis from the word that's why we have a discipleship class aimed at their level at 9 a.m on sunday mornings is so that uh you can come alongside these uh godly men and women who teach these classes uh, who want to help you disciple your children and raise them in the nurture and instruction of the lord i urge you to view it as a delight, a privilege, as we read earlier in Psalm 92, these wonderful words that they were looking forward to. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, most, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness at night, to the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work at the works of your hands. I sing for joy. This is what we do together as God's people. We gather and we sing his praise and we declare our thanksgiving for what he's done and we worship uh, with the saints in the, on the Lord's day. Let me close us in prayer. I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart may be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. And where we need to submit to your word, let us do so. And where we should be encouraged, because we have done so, let us find encouragement. But Jesus, thank you for the gift of the Lord's day that you've given us to refresh us to recharge us spiritually and mentally and physically and father let us set aside this day as unique from the rest as different and join your saints in worship jesus i pray this in your name amen